Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 282 of the podcast for May 18th, 2017. My guests today are two continuous improvement leaders from the Cleveland Clinic. They are Dr. Lisa Yarian and Nate Hurl. Lisa is the Medical Director of Continuous Improvement, and Nate is the Senior Director of Continuous Improvement. And they work together very closely in their efforts to drive improvement at the clinic. In today's episode, we talk about a number of topics, including the Cleveland Clinic Improvement Model, which I've blogged about previously, how the program is structured, what a culture of continuous improvement means to them and the clinic staff, how to get others to accept lean and CI methods and some of the challenges they're facing in their work. Um, So you can find links um, to their Twitter and LinkedIn profiles, as well as some of my past posts by going to leanblog.org slash 282. I also wanted to mention that Lisa is presenting next week at the 8th Annual Patient Experience Conference. It's the Empathy and Innovation Summit. It's taking place May 22nd through 24th at the Cleveland Convention Center. Uh, It's short notice, but I hope you can join them. Again, you can find a link to uh, that event on the blog post, or you can go to empathyandinnovation.com. So again, we are joined today by Nate Hurl and Dr. Lisa Yarian. We have uh, of course, uh, a physician and Lisa, we have uh, Nate, who is an industrial engineer. So to start off, um, if, if you can introduce yourselves, your, you know, a little bit about your professional background and how it was that you got introduced um, to lean and continuous improvement. Uh, Nate, we'll, uh, we'll start with you. Thanks, Mark. So I'm an industrial engineer, uh, and I've been working at the Cleveland Clinic now for 10 years. Prior to that, was at Kodak. So Really, this is a space that I found interest in when I was in school, uh, studying industrial engineering and kind of figuring out what area of specialty I wanted to focus on. And while I was at Kodak, I had a great chance to learn from a really a lot of smart people there, including uh, Shingojitsu, who came in and helped with their transformation. So a lot of uh, hands-on practical experience in the various business units there, including some time overseas at a new plant that we had opened. Well, part of why I really like it and why I put my time and energy behind this is it has an opportunity to make a very significant impact. So we work with thousands of caregivers who touch our patients every day, and the more we can do to improve the way that they deliver care uh, as they eliminate waste inside their own process, it has a very direct effect on the patients that we take care of and also has a very direct effect on our caregivers who really, uh, we find, get more enjoyment out of their work. Yeah, and one of those caregivers, um, Lisa, um, if you can kind of you know introduce yourself, I'm sure you had a very different path to lean and continuous improvement. Yeah, absolutely. So I went to medical school and did residency and fellowship all at the University of Chicago. I specialized in gastrointestinal and liver pathology and then came to the Cleveland Clinic really to establish a career as a GI and liver pathologist. And a couple years after I got here, I started to get asked to get involved in problems that were occurring within the laboratory. 
Um, I think probably for a couple of reasons. Uh, as a surgical pathologist, I'm fairly extroverted and I would say pretty friendly. And so the team, the managers, and the techs would often come to me and ask me to get involved. And as we started to work on some of our process problems, I became aware of a few different things. One was a team that had been started here at the Cleveland Clinic who had expertise in process improvement, and they helped us some and also began to look at other laboratories that had worked to improve their operations. And through both of those, started to learn about lean. And I would say that there were multiple elements that really resonated with me. Um, I liked things very, very, being very visual as a pathologist. I look at slides all day. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am a visual person, and so I liked the way that uh, a lot of the work was made visual so everybody could see it and have a common understanding of it. Um, I liked the simplicity of the concepts. They're not, of course, easy, but they are conceptually very simple, and I found that very pleasing. And then I really loved the philosophical side of respect for the worker and the place where the work is being done. Um, I'm from rural southeastern Ohio, and those concepts of respecting people really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And so it was really the combination of things that made me want to learn more and more and do more and more with it, and that's really what I've done for about the past um, seven or eight years. Okay, so that was the time frame. We got Nate's time frame with Lean and, and being at Cleveland Clinic. It was about seven or eight years ago when you were getting pulled into attempts to solve problems, discovering Lean. Is that right? That's about right, yeah. Yeah, and yes, for you, you mentioned I've worked with a lot of pathologists and um, uh, engineers and pathologists both have a reputation for being introverted. I'm reminded of uh, <laughs> a joke I've heard told by pathologists, the same applies to engineers, uh, you know, an extroverted pathologist or engineer, you know, the difference is they look at your shoes when they're talking to you instead of looking at their own. But, um, but um, yeah, good, uh, a good place to get uh, involved with um, continuous improvement. And so, you know, talk a little bit more about some of the background with um, Cleveland Clinic. You know, there's, there's, of course, a worldwide reputation for clinical excellence. Uh, What was some of the impetus for um, continuous improvement within that context? Yeah, I would say that the Cleveland Clinic has long been focused on patients first. It's our mantra, and we very much uh, try to make that real for every patient who comes through our doors. And much of patients first can be delivered through individual effort, through discretionary effort, through, you know, empathy, through the work we do as individuals, but there's a huge component of patients first that we can't do as individuals and we can't do just by trying hard. And so as our CEO, uh, Dr. Toby Cosgrove, uh, began to really realize that there were problems that were just too big to solve with just do it or by individual efforts, um, he started to look towards process improvement and in 2006 started a process improvement team here at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, That team went through a variety of phases looking at both discrete project efforts, some standardized tools, uh, and a variety of methods. And then ultimately in 2013, we really started to realize that if we wanted to fundamentally change healthcare, change the way we deliver it, we had to engage every single caregiver Mm -hmm. in 
improvement work. And that was really the only way that we saw to make it big enough and impactful enough to truly deliver the kind of care we wanted to. And that got us on our lean cultural transformation journey. Mm-hmm. And and Lisa, are you also dedicated to these efforts full time? Are you also still um, practicing as a pathologist? Uh, I still, I'm a practicing pathologist, and I would say that's true for nearly every physician leader at the Cleveland Clinic. Our clinical credibility remains very important, no matter what other efforts we're leading. And so I'm 40% clinical, which means I do clinical work about two days a week. Mm-hmm. And and Nate, could could you comment a little bit on you know, this idea of uh, patients first and, and not just asking individuals to uh, to try harder or be more careful. Uh, what, what, what was your impression of that, um, even though you've been there 10 years now, coming in as an outsider to healthcare? What, what are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, so when I first came into healthcare, the, the parts that were really clear is the connection to our customer, our patients, right? We get to see it every day. It's a fantastic uh, motivator for people. And what we really started to see, though, was this common trend of it was really hard to see the work, uh, Mm. in part because the value that gets transformed sometimes is inside the human body, so it's hard to see that. Other times it's over a period of months where they come in, you know, for an hour here, an hour there, but it's something that is occurring over months. And so as we started working with the various caregivers who really wanted to uh, really improve the care for the patient and go beyond in the moment to, to really looking at that longitudinal care it became really important to understand what was occurring over this duration. And as we started to make that visual and help them see the delays that were occurring, uh, the points where patients were waiting for new information, that really started to, I'd say, shift how we viewed our work and start to see it more as a process. Mm-hmm. Which is a big shift inside healthcare. We, I'd say, healthcare is still one that is assumes the process is what it is, and now we're really beginning to shift and take more of a focused effort and say, how do we do what it is that we're doing better? How do we eliminate the waste that's inside of it? Now, um, how how does Cleveland Clinic define or describe continuous improvement? Um, does that incorporate? Can you talk about some of the terminology? you use and how that uh, incorporates or includes lean and other methods? So what we do here is uh, continuous improvement as a department, but we really try to talk about it more in the context of what we call the improvement model, which is a model that serves all improvement that we want every caregiver to be engaged with. So our, our vision around that, when people say what it is that we're trying to achieve, we want every caregiver every day capable, empowered, and expected to make improvements. Period. And that simplicity really enables the organization to rally around that and say, hey, can we envision a future where we have 51,000 people making improvements every day and what that would be like for our patients? And that is a concept that's really easy for our organization to grab because of the patient's first uh, mantra that Lisa was describing earlier. Then as we talk about the how are we going to achieve that, we talk about the improvement model being really the means that we want to put into place these systems with these behaviors at the frontline level, at the manager level, and at the senior leader level. And if we do this and we do this well, we will have a better care for our patients. Mm-hmm. I think one of the key points, Mark, around the way we talk about continuous improvement here is that although our department is called continuous improvement, 
we have worked hard to eliminate the perception that we are, our team is the only team engaged in continuous mm-hmm. improvement. Continuous wow. improvement is the work of the organization right. to right. improve the quality, safety, experience of care, the efficiency of our care, access to our care, but it's everybody's work. We're stewards of the organization to help all of those 51,000 caregivers do that better, do that as well as they can. That's our job is to support the continuous improvement of the rest of the organization. And the the improvement model, uh, the Cleveland Clinic improvement model, I will post a link um, to that, that, that visual. Um, I've, I've blogged about this before. There's a, a PDF that you can view. But in, in a nutshell, and, and maybe I'll invite you to you know, kind of comment on it a little bit without going through all the detail, because, I mean, there, there's a lot here. Um, you know, I like this model. There, there are four pieces to it, uh, four columns, organizational alignment, visual management, uh, which you know, you've both touched on, uh, problem solving, and standardization. Um, how... how I mean, what, what what are some of the key points from your standpoint about this model? And, and there's a, a question up at the top here. Uh, what matters most? So I think the most important point is that we didn't start with a model. We started with the problem we were trying to solve mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. a state we were trying to achieve. So Nate and I didn't sit in a room and say, okay, here's our model. Now let's go transform this organization. We flipped that. So we had the charge given to us by our leadership to build a culture, to really institutionalize a culture of continuous improvement. And then, you know, we walked out with that charge realizing that that's really hard. There's no clear path to doing that. The lean transformation model from the Lean Enterprise Institute hadn't been publicized yet. and we knew lots of organizations had tried to do this and, and had struggled or failed. And so instead of being prescriptive, we engaged one leader and one team in partnership and said, help us figure out how to do this. And as we went through that thinking, we came around capability as a key thing that we needed to build that culture. We said, okay, our caregivers are highly engaged. We don't have a desire gap. What is it that we can change to change the culture? And we landed on capability. We didn't know exactly what all capability was included, but we had a sense problem solving was important. Mm -hmm. And so we started with some A3 problems that the team worked on together, and they gave us feedback as we worked through that with them. Problem solving remains in the model, but as we were doing this first cycle of A3 capability building, the the leaders that we were working with in this very first model area started to identify the needs for the other systems. And the way they did that is by telling us, um, now that we know how to solve problems, how do we know which are the most important problems to solve? How do we keep track of all of the problems that we have that we would like to solve? How do we actually lead every day in this way outside of these handful of A3 projects that we've been working on. And I think what they were expressing was really the need for the additional systems that exist in the model. And so as we worked with that first team, we had leaders come out and invite us, ask us to come work with additional teams. And when we worked with team after team after team, all of that input and learning that we were gaining together became 
the model, that mm -hmm. information of what are the systems that are required in our organization in order to do this. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the one thing I like about, I mean, there's a lot that, that I like there, but, you know, when I hear you talk about starting from the idea of solving, you know, high level organizational problems, that reminds me of uh, John Shook, the Lean Enterprise Institute transforma transformation model, where he asked, you know, what problem are you trying to solve? Uh, you know, going back to Taiichi Ono and Toyota, he talked about uh, the idea of uh, starting from need and starting with your most pressing needs. Um, so to me, you know, that, that reminds me of that, what matters most. But uh, Nate, what would, you, what would you add to that? I think part of how the model evolved, and, and really we believe that's the right word, because it was a collection of teams and a collection of individuals that created it. In many ways, we, we wrote the model after we completed our first set of stories, mm -hmm. uh, our first set of experiments, and we took a step back and said, what did we just create? And the team came together and they wrote down the model that, that essentially took that experience and hard-coded it a little bit. What we've done since then is we continue to refine that model on an annual basis. So uh, standardization is one of those four systems. We believe in it ourselves. And so we follow the current standard until a new one is discovered. Mm -hmm. And so what we do with that model is every year we review it, and sometimes we make a few changes, sometimes we make uh, more substantive changes. Mm -hmm. Part of what works really well about that and calling it the improvement model is the engagement and partnership we have with other parts of the organization, with our Quality and Patient Safety Institute, with our Patient Experience Office, within Human Resources. They all contribute to defining what the model is so that we can equally support it in practice. So, um, you know, following up on some of that, um, kind of pointing this question at you, Lisa, as a physician, um, you know, looking at the um, standardization column, um, you know, sustaining what matters most, maybe also, you know, standardizing what matters most, but continuously improving it. Um, what, what sort of discussions have you had with, uh, with physicians, um, around this notion of, of, you know, kind of working to find the right level of standardization. How, how, how has that discussion gone? Is, maybe you can't generalize, but what are some examples of that discussion with clinicians? Yeah. I, I think that that discussion has gone very well in our organization. So I'll tell you that my observation is it's hard to lead here with standardization, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to go after standardization first because... I don't know, I don't think people really experience, they don't start by experiencing lack of standardization as a problem. But as you work through the problems, and the physicians own and, you know, really work hard to solve problems. So the physicians own problems of surgical site infections or readmissions or length of stay. As they work through those problems, then they begin to understand variation and root causes, and then they begin to see standardization really as something that helps them solve those problems, then people start to see other opportunities to standardize. And Nate and I were just this morning with our Digestive Diseases and Surgical Institute, and totally unsolicited, one of the leaders in the room said, spoke up and said, I really think standardization is at the heart of this, which was mm -hmm. interesting mm -hmm. because there's no way we could have led with standardization. And now that teams have worked through enough problems where standardization helps them, um, you know, create stability, create the standard upon which they can improve, now there, I, I think, is much greater enthusiasm for standardization yeah. as 
one of the systems in the model. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think, um, you know, I think standardization comes back to this idea of what are we trying to improve? What are we trying to accomplish? You know, I wrote an article for uh, LEI and the Lean Post um, back in 2014. The headline, the title was, you know, standardization is a countermeasure, never the goal. And, um, you know, what, what I hear you saying about not leading with standardization, I think is a good strategy of not going out and standardizing for the sake of standardizing. Why? Because lean says we should standardize. I'm like, well, I mean, I think we often do end up standardizing because it leads to better safety, better quality, better results, uh, in different ways. Right. Yeah. But standardization, you're right. Standardization isn't the purpose. Um, and we try very hard to ensure that through our, you know, any one of our caregivers' work, they have a clear sense of purpose. You know, the purpose is the outcome. The purpose is quality or the purpose is patient, the patient's experience. Standardization is not the purpose. That's part of why in that subtext of our standardization system that there's that tagline of sustain what matters most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A big part of that purpose is to sustain the gains that we have put in place. You know, one of the things we talk about with our teams quite regularly is the, the world really just wants to continue to tear apart anything you've put in place. And whether that be simply because you have caregiver turnover, right, you have new employees to the unit, or whether that be because uh, there's new uh, equipment or supplies or new procedure, there's always something that is tearing away at that foundation you've put into place. And so our objective with standardization, both at the front line and how we do our work, as well as the manager and senior leader levels, is really to sustain what it is we have uh, going. Yeah. And so part of that sustainment, um, you know, I'm sure comes from, uh, you know, teaching energy, um, coaching that comes from the continuous improvement department. So maybe, you know, if we can take a little bit deeper dive, you, you alluded earlier, uh, about the role of the department that you're not the only ones, um, who are allowed to continuously improve. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the the department is structured. What are some of the things you do to try to help um, create and nurture and spread this culture? Yeah, so it's, it's very thoughtful. We really work hard with the organization to identify specifically where it is that we want to build this culture. And so we're working systemically across the organization, both at our, our main campus, which has about 20,000 employees as well as our regional hospitals and family health centers. And so we identify those early on with our senior leaders, our executive chief nursing officer, hospital president, uh, the individual that oversees all of our regional operations. And once we identify those specific areas, and we really look for willing partners, people who are a make-it-happen leader as it relates to creating this culture, we then partner very directly with their local leaders and as we put in these various systems and so within our department we have some standards that we follow that provide a roadmap for what are the different behaviors that we are looking for and what are the tools or the artifacts that we use to make it easier to follow those behaviors. But it's a side-by-side -side partnership. Our role is to coach those leaders in the front line and their role, and they know this walking in, is to really learn and sustain it. And, and part of our test for is this working, as I mentioned earlier, there's natural turnover that occurs. Does this die? Does it require us to go back and, and hold on to it? Or does it sustain on its own? And what we've seen over and over again is because you have the whole community supporting it, you have all the front line, you have the managers, that it's sustaining because they are teaching each other. 
when a new person comes in, it's not our team that is going back and, and teaching people how we do this work. It is their own local team. And I think, Mark, one of the things that we've done with the model areas that's helped our ability to step away and keep going is setting very clearly the expectation at the front end that we are leaving and they are going to, expected to be able to carry this forward and continue to lead improvement and build capability across their team to lead improvement, to solve problems, et cetera. I think creating that expectation up front makes people engage and learn in a very different way. And I look at my own experience training residents, fellows, medical students, you can really see a difference between those who don't seem to realize that someday they're going to have to do this on their own mm -hmm. and those who are very close to needing to be able to do this on their own, those who have the expectation that they're going to need to turn around and do this themselves and teach it themselves tomorrow, engage and learn in a very different way. And that's what we were, we were working towards. One of the items we talked about earlier was uh, this idea of empowering the front line to make improvements. And, and the same goes true with the managers, empowering them to lead. We firmly believe it's to start with capability. And so a part of the, the feedback that we've been receiving from uh, nurse leaders, as an example, is how it's really developed their nurse managers in a very different way. It's, mm. it's created a different set of leader capabilities and behaviors. And I would say we are an organization that historically relied on our leaders to really drive all the improvement that, that would happen. And so obviously that becomes a, a bottleneck in terms of capacity, and we recognize it's not always the best solutions because they're not always the closest to the work. And so this has really freed the nurse managers, nurse directors to lead in a different way that engages their team in improvement. Mm -hmm. can, can you share an example or a story, either, either one of you or both of you, of uh, you know, a situation where you were coaching a leader in a department to try to help them sort of, uh, you know, adopt this, uh, this different style of, of managing and leading, if you will. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stories to tell. Uh, part of where we get a lot of excitement is actually the stories that happen when we're not there. And so it's through that initial capability build, you know, so if we're working beside a nurse manager and a team and maybe for the first time we're talking about a, a fishbone diagram or we're talking about how to create a, a, a Pareto as it relates to the, the causes of a particular defect. Uh, naturally, because we're there side by side, um, that, that tends to work pretty well. The great parts of the story and where our team really gets excited is when they go back maybe a few days later and the nurse manager says, hey, let me show you this fishbone I just created on a different problem. Let me show you this process map we just worked on yesterday. And those are the organic, that's how we know that, that it is, a, one, it's a worthwhile activity for them because they're reapplying it, and two, is it's really our indicator for that capability being transferred. We hear those stories quite regularly, and, and those are the ones that excite us. Those are the ones that really point to, hey, this is working. Yeah, and that's a good sign when there is improvement work happening. Um, <laughs> I says tongue in cheek without your permission, <laughs> right? I mean, it's happening. That's a really good sign. Yeah, it was, I think it was. Uh, I heard this from you before, Mark. Where someone had asked you, "How do you know if improvement is uh, really part of the culture?" And it's it's really when you can't separate it, right? Mm -hmm. When you can say, "Oh, we do improvement from two to three o'clock on Thursdays." 
Right. It's not really part of the culture yet. Once you, it becomes hard to separate, it becomes a, a part of the fabric, and that's where we're headed. Yeah. We've had examples. Sorry, we've had examples of teams that we've gone back to visit six months, a year, or more after we quote unquote finished our engagement with them as a model area, where they've pulled out their latest A3 results and shown it to us, and they've done work or they have continued to solve problems and created, you know, more and more leader standard work or standard work for their for their own frontline work without us even being involved. And that's probably one of the more rewarding mm-hmm. things that we get to see when we go out and spend time with our you teams. Share the hemolysis example? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, this is a great example. We had worked with the outpatient phlebotomy teams. Um, they initially came into, we have an A3 team-based application, prob, you know, application-based problem-solving program, and they brought in a problem of patient wait times, and they worked on that for a while, and, you know, we learned that they needed to improve their data systems, and then ultimately we, they became a model area, really under the premise that this wasn't something that they were going to solve once, this was something they're going to need to solve every single day for the rest of their careers, you know, how long are our patients waiting, how do we meet the demand. So we worked with them for, I don't know, several months, and they drastically improved their patient wait time. So they had a 15-minute target. They went from about 60% of the time to over 95% of the time hitting that target. They implemented visual management, some problem-solving systems, some standard work, et cetera. Um, We went back, I don't know, maybe a year after we'd finished, and there was a A3 on the wall, and one of the caregivers shared with us, he's a team lead, that he had gone on to solving the next problem because they had pretty much mastered this patient wait time target that was in Mm -hmm. front of them. And the problem was that they had in that particular laboratory um, an excessive number of blood samples that became hemolyzed. So that means that the red blood cells break down and it releases electrolytes, and so your electrolyte values, particularly your potassium, can become off, and that creates a need for rework, right? The patient has mm-hmm. to come back and get their blood redrawn. So he worked on an A3. He spent time collecting data. He went out and watched the process in multiple different laboratories to see what they were doing differently. He implemented with the team multiple countermeasures and did PDCA, checked the data to see if those countermeasures were resulting in change, mm-hmm. and how many samples were hemolyzed, and uh, ultimately drastically reduced the number of hemolyzed samples coming out of that laboratory um, in, in, a, in a sustained way. So that was pretty exciting for us that he went on and was able to do that on his own without us being there to either help him or to encourage him to take on the next problem. Yeah. What, what I thought was really great inside of that as well, and you could really see the, the demonstration of, of the capability, was he was able to say which countermeasures worked and which ones didn't and, and why. And I think that's a big shift where we have a lot of ideas historically of what the countermeasures could be, and we just try them, and we're like, yeah, it worked, or yeah, it didn't, but we don't really have a great cause and effect type of uh, approach. Mm-hmm. And he really did. He knew, hey, we tried this one, we thought it was going to work, turned out to have no effect, it just looks real good. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's there's a difference, an important difference between an organization feeling like we, we need to know the answer as opposed to having uh, a good hypothesis 
um, planning and doing and then studying and adjusting, whether it's the improvement model. You know, it's great to hear that you, you, it sounds like you are reevaluating that and trying to continuously improve the continuous improvement model. That's a, a really good sign. Um, you know, uh, I was going to touch back uh, two other th um, things and, and another question for you here. Yeah, Nate, when you mentioned it being hard to separate time. Um, the people at Franciscan St. Francis Health in Indianapolis, where my co-author um, Joe Schwartz from our Healthcare Kaizen books uh, has, has been working for 10 years, more than 10 years. I've asked staff there, how much time do you spend on improvement? And they, they do struggle with it. It's like asking a fish to describe the water that's around them to use that um, analogy. But let, let me let me follow up with with one or both of you uh, a question. I, I got a question the other day, and I, I tried addressing this um, in a blog post. Um, you know, somebody who's looking for or their leaders are looking for an answer, and a couple of those answers they were looking for are well, how many people do we need in a dedicated uh, central improvement function? And uh, in sort of a long-winded way, I said, I don't know. You need as many as you need, and it depends on what they're doing. Um, you know, I think the second question is, well, you know, how much time do we need to dedicate? And, you know, again, like, I, I don't know what to say other than it depends. I don't know. Go figure it out. Um, so let me, let me ask it first as a fairly direct question, um, uh, at least from Cleveland Clinic. How, how many people do you have uh, in a, a central improvement function? And, and can you estimate how much time people spend on improvement, frontline staff or leaders? Yeah, so uh, a lot of different thoughts on, on this topic. One is uh, my favorite answer when people ask how big does your central improvement team need to be, I say, well, it needs to be at least one. Um, if you have more than one, then you have a start. And, and really, the question isn't how big does it need to be. And, and we've really shifted this question around to a number of our leaders the question is, how fast do you want to go? And what, what is it that your organization can sustain? How much time can they sustain? And then from that, we can figure out how, what the resource requirement is from a central improvement team. Shifting that question has really uh, alleviated, I'd say, this, this, this question of, well, how big should the team be? We just keep going back to the organization and say, how fast do you want to go? Mm -hmm. And then here's our estimate. So in terms of how much time does a, a nurse manager or frontline nurse uh, spend improving, uh, that'd be hard for me to answer. You know, we have some regular activities that are more your typical meetings uh, where we formalize. It's really part of our standardization system. We formalize when we go through and ensure, for example, that our, our Kaizen ideas are being worked on and they're making progress, so that, that's formal time. And I would say in that formal time, a nurse manager probably has three to four hours a week. And then we have a lot of work that is built inside of their regular process. Uh, daily huddles, as an example, we build it inside. So, you know, there's a, a, our Q6 dialysis team, they huddle every day, as do most teams. And they have very specific metrics that they look at so that they can take action to resolve uh, problems. They have their ideas they're working through. They do that every day, and that's about a 5 to 15-minute huddle. And then they have work outside. There's another nursing unit that every day asks, okay, who needs time to work on an idea? 
and they figure out how to come together to provide people different time. Hey, I'll cover your patients. You can go ahead and you work on your idea for 20 minutes at 1 o'clock. So it's, it's really hard to answer how much time they spend. Um, I'd say that, that we have some specific activities where is general education that is easy to answer at the beginning. I would also say that if the leader or manager doesn't want to spend time on a consistent basis, it's simply not going to work. So mm -hmm. if somebody mm -hmm. said to us, you know, we want you guys to come out and help us build a model area, but they as a leader or manager weren't interested or able to commit time to it, we wouldn't commit time to it yeah. either because, you know, if they're not going to spend time on it, it's clearly not a priority mm -hmm. and not going mm -hmm. to work. Um, so there's got to be something. There's no magic number, though. I think it's as Nate said, it's a question of how fast I, do they want to go. I, I said the same thing in my post. And in my initial response, I turned it in, into a blog post. Uh, there, those exact words, there, there, there is no magic number. Um, and, and hopefully not having a, a magic number doesn't prevent their progress. But I, I think they need to start somewhere. And, uh, you know, if, if, the, if the number is X, you're probably not going to go from zero to X immediately. There's probably going to be some small tests of change and you're going to be figuring out what, what these people do, what their role is, how time consuming it is. I, I think a lot of this needs to be uh, figured out over time. I think it's a spot, too, where we actually see the amount of time they spend grow, uh, but it is for them to accomplish their work and their goals, so it doesn't feel like it's growing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we're working with our main campus nursing director. She spends a lot of time inside this work now because she uses it as a way to accomplish her objectives and the work that she needs to get done. So she doesn't view it as, oh, I need to spend you know 10 hours a week on CI. It's, I need to spend 10 hours a week on improving our business and the way we run our business and ensuring that our goals are aligned and ensuring that we're making progress and making sure that people have the right capability to be able to make improvements and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So I'd say it's actually one that's probably growing over time, not shrinking. Lisa, can you... Um Take take a first uh, stab at uh, kind of explaining your role, Nate's role uh, within the continuous improvement realm there at uh, Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, so um, I'm the medical director and Nate is the senior director. We have a common leadership model across many, many leadership roles at the Cleveland Clinic of having a physician and a, an administrative lead partnered. Um, so I, as the medical director, have uh, a lot of interface with our executive leaders. I am a member of our board of governors. I do a lot of interfacing with other physicians and also, and of course our CEO and our chief of staff are physician leaders. Um, I'm also heavily involved in setting the vision and the strategy uh, and ensuring that we're building and fostering a culture of improvement within our CI department. Um, Nate's role is to <laughs> make sure that all of the work gets done <laughs> in an effective way. So Nate handles really all of the administrative tasks. He handles all of the HR functions for the team. He helps build uh, effective systems for us to understand our work, to manage our work, that we're making progress. If there are problems, he makes sure that they are made visible in our work uh, and accomplishing them. Uh, Nate and I have to be linked at the hip, so we talk every day at least once. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I describe this 
relationship working well is our fates are linked. So I think it has to be clear that, and I think that's very much true, I'm not going to succeed at Nate's expense, and Nate's not going to succeed at my expense. I think we both share this common vision of a Cleveland clinic that fosters culture of improvement, and uh, we both do what we can, I would say, and in some ways just catch as catch can to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a couple other points I'd, I'd add, Mark. This is fantastic in interacting at our senior and executive levels, and so a lot of times she's in the middle of opening doors, new spaces that we can go work in. She also does a great job of regularly going to Gemba and see the work, and mm-hmm. therefore she can communicate firsthand those experiences. It's not it's not a communication that is, hey, here are the numbers and the stats I was given. It's a communication of here are the stories I've seen and observed myself. Um, my, my responsibility is, is really to make sure that that work is done well. So ultimately, if it, our team and how our team is uh, both structured and our team's capability, that is uh, my responsibility. And that's a big part of that is going to Gemba and working with the team. We have a great group of people. Uh, they have a very diverse background. A lot of them came from outside healthcare, different organizations, different industries. And so part of what's fun is we collectively own this. This isn't Lisa's, this isn't Nate's, not ours. It's, it's really something that is owned by the whole team. And all the work is really done by them. Our job is to support them and uh, remove some barriers for them. But they do the heavy lifting. They are the ones that are in the middle of transforming the work with the front line and with the managers and are just doing wonderful, wonderful work. And I think, I think one of the things that we've found is that just as Nate and I find this work to be fun and rewarding, which hopefully it's come across in knowing us in our comments, our team also finds this work highly rewarding. You know, they're very engaged and excited. They love it when, you know, a caregiver, a manager gets something and starts to think differently about the work or about problems. So they really enjoy it. And that's, I would say, a transition from when we first started to talk about culture of improvement where it in the conversation incited some anxiety and concerns among our team. I think our team has come a long way in really engaging the organization in a very different way and really enjoying the fact that we have the opportunity to do that. Hey, part of our role is a little bit of a, um, a newspaper reporter. What I mean by that is they're, they're not really our stories. Mm-hmm. They're our nurse manager's stories. They're the, the mm-hmm. leader in our finance division. It's their stories. And sometimes we get a chance to share those, but m- more often we like them to share their stories. So we have them do the report out. Our CI people are in the back of the room, you know, mm-hmm. kind of as that proud parent, if you will, (laughs) Um, and that's really where the satisfaction comes in is seeing that transformation occur with those that are are really doing the work. So as we uh, wrap up here, uh, one other question just wanted to ask, you know, as you look ahead here into the coming months or the rest of 2017, I mean, what what matters most right now? What are some of your most pressing needs um, that that you're working on individually or with the people you're, you're coaching? Lisa? So we have laid out a commitment to the organization to engage every caregiver in a culture of improvement over the next five years. So there are about 51,000 caregivers, so that's about 10,000 caregivers per year. So we're working towards 
a 10,000 target by the end of this year. And what that means is a lot of things. It means us having 10,000 caregivers in front of us who want to build this culture. Mm -hmm. It means us being as efficient as a, and as, as effective as we can be to deliver a quality transformation experience for these caregivers. So really a lot of our work is improving the way we do our work to ensure that we are helping the organization in the best possible way build that culture. Yeah, the element I would add to that is uh, our, our model, the strongest part of our model is our problem-solving system, and part of, as we're working to spread this 10,000 to this 10,000, we're also really working to improve the organizational alignment and visual management systems. Uh, we believe that that is really a next piece for us. And so we're running these experiments side by side, which some days makes it a little confusing, where we're trying to add more to what a model area is by creating clearer organizational alignment while at the same time trying to spread this to, to 10,000. And so those experiments are fun. Uh, we've made a lot of progress in the first four months of this year. I go out every week uh, to see our, our different work. Um, probably almost every day I'm out at least seeing someone's work and what they're working on. And our team's just doing a wonderful job. Right now it is very much an experiment stage, and we'll be looking to standardize on that later in the year. But we didn't want to stifle the innovation and the creativity early on. We really wanted to test a bunch of different ways and figure out what the best way to do this is. That's great. Um, fi final question here. I want to talk uh, Twitter uh, for a minute. Um, you, you've both been um, active on, on Twitter and sharing a lot of uh, photos and examples um, that, that you and your colleagues uh, are involved in um, at Lisa Yarian, MD. Um, Lisa, could you could you first maybe share some thoughts about being involved in social media? Um, how, how have you found that that sharing and, and transparency to uh, to hopefully be helpful? Yeah, I, I think it's fun. I think it sets the um, it sets up our team. Some of our teams have done really good work, and they like to see themselves recognized. Even the ones who aren't on Twitter like to know that their work or their pictures have been tweeted. So it's a good way for us to recognize the great work of the caregivers. Um, it's also a good way, I think, to kind of share candidly, this is where we are and this is what we're doing um, in a way that really, in, in the same spirit as we built our model and the culture of improvement uh, approach here, you know, we're putting it out there and saying, tell us how to make it better, you know, give us feedback, help us figure this out together. And I think when you look at the challenge that's in front of us in healthcare as an industry, you know, it's great if one of us can figure out something that works well, but it's even better if we can all share it and see it and get feedback and learn together. And I think Twitter provides that connectedness between lots of people who are interested in building uh, lean, continuous improvement culture across healthcare to learn and give feedback and share with each other. Yeah. And uh, Nate, you're on, on Twitter, at Nate Hurl, with, uh, with an E at the end, H-U-R-L-E. And I'll, I'll link to both Nate and Lisa's Twitter files, uh, um, Twitter handles in uh, the blog post. Um, Nate, what are, what are some of your thoughts about this sharing and, and what you get out of it? Yeah, I think there's, there's two parts. If, if I go back to my early days at Kodak, I shared that I had a chance to learn from a lot of smart people. And a big part of how I did that at that time was I said, hey, can you come over and take a look at what I'm doing? I'm new to this stuff. I think I'm doing some things well. I think I know there's other things I'm missing. And they were great. They would share their experience and their time with me, and I was really appreciative. 
And so technology has provided us a, a new opportunity to do that and a little different way to do that. But that's this idea of one being transparent with our work and there's a lot of places we can get better in how we're doing it and we're okay sharing that with the world and saying this is where we are right now. Uh, we've made progress, we have a lot more to go. The, the other part that I really like about it is that um, Twitter's built-in 140 character limit really forces us to think about how to have simple messages which I believe is really important as we're working with our teams. They're not CI professionals, nor do they want to be CI professionals. They want to improve care for their patients. And that's ultimately our job is to provide them systems and knowledge and skills where that they can do that more effectively. And this really forces our messaging to be very clear. Well, that's great. And I encourage people to, to follow you and um, take a look at what you're what you're doing there. Um, one other thing I, I know you, you wanted to mention, you're involved in, Lisa, you'll be speaking at uh, Cleveland Clinic's Patient Experience Summit um, coming up uh, in later May. Could you sort of just give uh, a quick overview of, of that event? Yeah, so it was, I think, the first patient experience-centered conference. It was started several years ago, and it's grown to have uh, hundreds of attendees from many countries across the world. It's uh, patient experience focused and the, the message that I'll be sharing is how continuous improvement is better not only for patients but also for caregivers. And so we'll be sharing some examples of how our teams have improved the experience of patients and what that's really meant for them as caregivers and how that affects how they engage with each other and engage with patients going forward. Well, that that's great. And I'll, I'll put a link uh, in the show notes, uh, it's easy to find if, if anyone is interested, do a Google search for Cleveland Clinic Patient Experience Summit, and uh, you'll see that. You'll get to hear um, Lisa speak. So um, I want to thank you both very much. Uh, we've been joined today by uh, Dr. Lisa Yarian and Nate Hurl from uh, Cleveland Clinic. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to um, do another podcast someday. I want to thank you for being here. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.